Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 92, Sex in Space. Well, apparently there hasn't been much of it. So instead, let's talk about gender in space. And since there's only two parts to this episode... We're going to talk about females and males without meaning to imply that's the end of the story. Dear Cheap Astronomy, how bad is gender bias in space? In a perfect world, special consideration of women in space would be unnecessary. There would just be consideration about generic humans where we might ponder a range of physical differences. So, for example... The shortest astronaut in space was Peggy Whitson at 1.6 metres, the first female commander of the International Space Station, and the tallest astronaut was Jim Weatherby at 1.9 metres, who managed the most space shuttle landings, five in all. The youngest astronaut was German Titov at 25 years old, and the oldest astronaut was John Glenn at 77 years old. But of course, we don't live in a perfect world. It is the case that women are substantially underrepresented in the astronaut population, making up just 10% over the history of human spaceflight, though things have been improving lately, with women making up around 30% of active flying NASA astronauts right now. The gender bias does somewhat arise from child-rearing, where the average age of a flying astronaut is 38, so mothers tend to be disadvantaged in the very competitive world of astronaut career advancement should they choose to take some time out. That is the only issue, though. Women and men have had children after flying to space. Various early concerns about menstruation needing gravity to work came to nothing. After all, it's not like women stand upright 24 hours a day. And if there were ever any equivalent concerns about men's sperm losing their way in microgravity, these never got much attention. Men and women's plumbing differences are largely irrelevant. Early on, women managed to adapt to toilets which had been designed for men, and nowadays there is an essentially unisex toilet aboard the International Space Station, with no particular reason for there not having been one there before. To be fair, the initial push by the US to get astronauts into space was gender-biased with a purpose. By ensuring astronauts were military personnel and quite often test pilots meant they were people who already had a higher than average risk of dying at work. That said, the Russians seemed to be a bit more relaxed about it all, flying both Valentina Tereshkova in 1963 just two years after Yuri Gagarin, and Svetlana Savitskaya in 1982, before Sally Ride from the US went up in 1983. Over the course of the astronaut age, there have been 19 in-flight fatalities, with four of those being female, all from the US. This is all tragic, particularly losing the first teacher in space, but none of these deaths, male or female, were absolute showstoppers. So, just because something's dangerous, 
doesn't mean you should just sin mean. And a quick aside here. Did you know about the fallen astronaut installation that's on the moon? In 1971, the Apollo 15 crew dropped an apparently unauthorised plaque listing the 14 US and Russian astronauts that had died up to that point in time. The installation includes a 9cm aluminium astronaut figurine lying prone on the ground amongst astronaut footprints in the lunar soil. So, while human beings may be tragically flawed, they still do occasionally shine. And since space exploration seems the best answer to our ongoing existential dilemma about what to do next, we should then be aiming to accommodate the whole of humanity in our space travel plans. A March 2019 plan for the first spacewalk to be conducted by two women had to be cancelled because there weren't enough small-sized spacesuits to accommodate both women. There is some rationale for this, insofar as spacesuits are expensive and take up a lot of storage space, so it's not surprising that the majority are aimed to fit an average-sized person. But this pretty much exemplifies what underlies the whole gender bias issue. If most of the available spacesuits are too big to accommodate female crew, because most spacewalks are done by men, then most spacewalks will continue to be done by men. So it is just a failure to address the requirements of 50% of humanity. As it turned out, a two-woman spacewalk did go ahead in October 2019, where a subsequent female crew member was able to wear a medium-sized spacesuit. The next generation of spacesuits planned for the Artemis missions are expected to be more accommodating of different-sized people and will hopefully get the first woman on the moon. It's about time. This is the middle bit. So, there certainly is gender bias in space, but it's getting a bit better. The historical statistics are skewed, given that males pretty much had space to themselves for the first couple of decades. While they did accomplish some very useful things in that time, Maybe it's worth talking about what they did in their spare time. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Can you, you know, get it up in space? It's unlikely that anyone has yet had the time to have sex in space, let alone confirm if it's actually possible. The key point we're going to raise in this episode involves the male half of the equation, that is, whether guys can get it up in space. This is not to discount the vitally important role played by women in the overall transaction, but if the guys can't get it up, the rest of the process does become a bit problematic. Of course, there are a wide range of health issues that may contribute to erectile dysfunction back on Earth, but what we're asking here is can the various alpha males who pass all the vigorous physiological testing required to get on board a rocket actually get it up when they are up? However, put this question into a search engine and see if you get anywhere. I mean, come on, seriously. There are guys that have spent more than a year in space, but no one's ever thought to ask, um, <clears throat> so, you know... When it's all quiet and dark and everyone else is asleep, 
and your mind starts drifting from your mission priorities, have you ever, you know... And here, we are going to keep on saying, come on. The mechanics of sperm production are pretty much unstoppable. And all those sperm have to go somewhere. And here, we don't doubt the men and the women who have flown in space are all extreme professionals and for the most part had committed relationships with partners back on Earth. So it's not likely there's ever been an episode of genuine hanky-panky up there. But again, all those sperm have to go somewhere. So guys, come on. You're up there for a year or more. And okay, maybe it's never really quiet or dark. And it's never actually the case that all the crew are asleep at the same time. But even then, after a year of snuggling up in your vertical sleeping bag, with an eye mask and noise-cancelling earbuds, surely there must have been some times when your mind started drifting from your mission priorities. If it is actually true that no male astronaut has ever had a moment of earnest and rhythmic unprofessionalism in the privacy of his own sleeping bag, isn't that in itself a bit physiologically remarkable and maybe worth a scientific paper or two? In the absence of any reported data, we can at least ponder the mechanics of it. Your body's health and integrity depends on maintaining sufficient blood pressure so that blood can flow through all your tissues to deliver oxygen and remove waste products, including carbon dioxide. In microgravity, you do get by with a bit less blood pressure since your cardiovascular system doesn't need to work as hard to push the blood through your vascular circuit against gravity. But here we are just talking a lower pressure of maybe 10 to 20 millimetres of mercury. Even in microgravity, you still need a fair bit of blood pressure. So, when it's dark and quiet and your mind starts drifting from your mission priorities, it is very plausible that certain arterial valves could relax into an open state, allowing more blood to rush in, while other exit valves might tighten to slow the blood flow out then what was previously a limp appendage suddenly makes itself known. So, it is hard to see when you retain enough blood pressure in space to perfuse all your other body tissues, why would microgravity substantially affect a male's ability to, you know? And again, if it did have an effect, or initially it didn't but later it did, that gives some important insight into how microgravity affects the performance of your vascular system over time, not to mention a much more specific type of performance. If nothing else, surely it's an important bit of advice for a male astronaut embarking on a two-year mission to Mars. Oh, and uh, by the way, we should probably say that uh, by the time you get back, mm, no. So come on, guys, how about it? Given the preponderance of males in the astronaut population, isn't it time someone owned up in the name of science? Even if the answer is, no, never done it. Or we discover that 9 out of 10 male astronauts do it, and the other one's lying. All that is data. So come on, guys. It's time to stand tall and just put it out there. This is the end bit. So, there you go but not necessarily come. 
People have been busy in space for as long as they've been going to space, but there is still that final frontier of getting busy that we're yet to explore. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, and it honestly doesn't matter if it's big or small, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll try to pull a response together for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.